Here at Gospel Grace Church this year, 2023, we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, and we're nearing the end uh, just uh, this morning, next week, and one more, and we'll finish up the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22 is a particularly long chapter. It actually has 71 verses in it, which is why we've split it in half. So today, we're going to be looking at the second half of Luke 22. This morning, I'm going to begin in verse number 39 and read to the end. I want to invite you to follow along with me. And maybe as I read this morning, maybe instead of just uh, maybe following along in the words on the screen or in your Bible or on your phone, maybe just, just think about how the pressure is tightening and it's ramping up and Jesus is being squeezed I mean, he's, he's getting closer and closer to the cross, and it seems like things are getting worse and worse. And I want you just to imagine yourself, as we read this text, imagine yourself, what is this like for Jesus? I mean, his friends run away into the darkness, as one who he traveled with for three years sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. As the one who's, you know, so famously says, I'll, I'll die for you before I deny you. And then we see him three times denying our Lord. The place of, of his most critical need, he stands alone. And I want you to just kind of feel that from the text this morning. Would you follow along, please, as I read verses 39 to the end of the chapter? When I finish, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond, thanks be to God. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. 
Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house and Peter following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and then look into this text. Father, this morning, we're thankful for your word because it gives us a chance to both understand and more deeply appreciate the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made for sinners like us. It wasn't just the cross, but all of these things leading up to it pained his heart deeply. So we wanna stop for a moment and realize this morning we want to pause and give thanks that Jesus endured all of this for us. Thank you, God, for sending your son to die in our place. We pray that you'd teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know that many of you in this room love the state of Utah. Some of you moved here because you love it so much. And I think it has a lot to do with the beauty of this place. I moved here from Wichita Falls, Texas, and there may be a few Texans in the room, and you're getting ready to stand up. As soon as I say the word Texas, you're going to stand up and say, I pledge allegiance to the Texas, one and indivisible. You're ready to do that. But I was in not the pretty part of Texas. I was in the flat, hot, windy, no trees, just mesquite shrubbery, deadness of Texas. And so when I moved here, I'm just going to tell you, when I moved here and, you know, lived at the base of these mountains and skied 
and saw the fall colors, you know, all of that is, is amazing. And some of you love that too. You know, one of the things about Texas is, uh, is it's just flat and there's really nowhere to go except you just keep walking straight, you know, into the sunset. There's nothing, you know. Uh, but here, I mean, we have all these trails that go up into the mountains. And I was on this uh, hiking a website recently, and this is how the, the website starts. It has this like phrase at the top. It says, trails don't just spontaneously appear. They're planned. They're built. They're blazed. So people can travel from trailhead to summit and beyond. You know, it sounds like we all want to go hiking now. Now, many of you enjoy hiking uh, like I do. Some of you do it more often than I do. We're amazed by some of the trails in these canyons around us. But sometimes, I mean, just think about, think about your hiking. Sometimes the trails aren't easy to see. We, we get in on this trail and then discover that it's been grown over with weeds. Or maybe there's been a rock slide and all of a sudden we've lost the trail itself. But good trails, good trails have markers along the way. Sometimes they're called blazes. Have you seen these things on trees, on trails? You're like, oh, I wonder why someone painted a square that's two inches by six inches on this tree. What does this mean? It's a marker. It's to help you on the trail. So if you see this one right here, it means keep going straight. You know, that's what this one means. And if you look at the next one over, that one means go to the right. Okay, some of you are lost already. You know? <laughs> this one means go to the left. This one means it's the start of a trail or a trailhead. This one's the end of a trail. And this one means another trail is joining it. So these are called blazes. They're markers. Uh, some of you are going to go on a hike now. You're like, I've got it. Uh, you're going to get lost. But <laughs> But these are blazes, these are markers, and they mark the path that you're supposed to follow when things aren't so clear. Now, when we get to this point in our text, Jesus has been on a path. He's been taking this long trail to Jerusalem. It started in Luke chapter 9. It says he set his face towards Jerusalem, and we've been walking with him on this trail, so to speak. But it's not really clear to everyone who's following, where is he going? They're not seeing all of the markers along the way. You can imagine some of these disciples asking questions like, why doesn't he do something about his betrayer? I mean, he tells us there's a betrayer. Why doesn't he do something about it? Or why does he walk right into the hands of an angry mob? Why does he keep adding fuel to the fire with these Jewish religious leaders? I mean, Jesus is on this trail, but we're not recognizing all of the markers. So what I hope to do today in this text is I want to show you some of the blazes, some of the markers along Christ's trail to the cross so that you can both understand and better appreciate the work that he did for us on Calvary. Notice first in our text that Jesus' path was marked by agony. I mean, if you were to think about his trail, one of the markers on his trail was called agony. 
The opening of our text, verse 39, tells us he went to one of his customary places, one of his favorite places to go. And where was that in verse 39? It was the Mount of Olives. He came out, it says, and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. When Jesus was nearby Jerusalem, he would go to this mountain of olives and he would go to this specific garden. Uh, in the other gospel accounts, we, we read that it's the garden of Gethsemane, meaning olive press, a place where there was likely an olive press. And Jesus would go there regularly and he goes there again here in the opening of our text. Now, I think it's interesting that Jesus is going to this to this garden. Jesus goes to this garden near the end of his life. And I think it's, it's curious because if you remember the start of human history, it all began in a what? In a garden. It all began in a garden. And sin entered into humanity in a garden. And actually, as you fast forward through scripture, you find that at the end of human history, we will end up, redeemed people, will end up in a garden city. Do you know that? A garden city. It says in the book of Revelation, the tree of life will be there. And there will be a stream coming out from the tree of life and there will be healing of the nations through the tree. This is Revelation 21 and 22. So the Bible forecasts this thread of gardens. And so it starts with a garden where man sinned and it ends with a garden where God reigns. But in between, there's a garden where Jesus endured great agony. And that's the garden of Gethsemane that's referred to here in our text this morning. Now I think there are a few layers to Jesus' agony here in the garden. The first thing that we realize is that Jesus in this garden is going to find himself alone. I mean, the first point of agony is, is really the aloneness of his suffering. He would be alone in the garden and he'd be alone on that cross. He would bear all of this alone. Look at verse number 40. In verse number 40, it says, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw. I don't know how far you can throw a stone, but maybe I could hit the back of the room there with a stone. So Jesus is somewhere in the back row there where Jared Jenkins is. He's back there. Wave to Jared. Hi, Jared. Okay, Jesus is way back there. And the disciples are, are right up here. And Jesus bows down. It says he knelt down and prayed. Now skip down to verse number 45. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them, what? Sleeping. Here, here's Jesus. I mean, he's agonizing over what's about to take place. He, he's in prayer and agony to his father about what's going to unfold. And his closest friends are right, right here. And they're all sleeping. I think it's interesting. You know, some of us know what it's like to be left alone in a difficult time of life. Do you know what that's like? 
I mean, you're, you're, you're in a spot and you feel like people have just, just left you alone. I was, uh, I was on this overseas trip uh, three weeks ago, I guess, maybe four weeks, I can't remember. I, I flew over to Western Asia and uh, left after a Sunday morning service. I taught for two days in a school over there and turned around and came back. So in a five-day stretch, I flew over there, flew back, and tried to teach for two days. And I was all upside down. I didn't know what time of day it was or night or whatever when I got back. And uh, I arrived at 5.38 p.m. uh, so that I could teach a seminary course here at 6.30. So I had traveled for 27 hours on a plane. You're like, why didn't you get a substitute? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not very smart. So I arrived at 5.38, came over, taught for three hours of lecture for the seminary course, got home that night, and I wanted to text the director of the school that I had just left and just let him know, like, hey, made it back, you know. So I lay down in bed. I mean, I just lay down in bed, and I'm starting the text, and I'm so tired, I couldn't finish the text. Like, I'm trying to spell a word, and I can't, I can't do it. I I was so tired, I couldn't finish spelling the word, and I fell asleep right there with my phone in my hand. And then I kind of woke up, because I'm like, oh, yeah, I have to finish this text. And I tried again, and I couldn't finish it. And the next thing I know, Liesl smacks me and says, are you sleeping? You know, I must have been snoring in that moment, like, that quick. I was that tired. I thought about that when I was reading this text. Jesus is over there agonizing And the disciples just fall asleep. Some of you men, you've had a long day of work. You you get into bed. You're you're like ready just to collapse. I mean, you're beat. You know the second your head hits the pillow, you're going to be out. You're going to be gone somewhere into Neverland. And just as you lie down, your wife begins to tell you about her day. I mean, she starts sharing heart moments, you know some difficult event that happened, how it made her feel. You're trying to listen. You're saying to yourself, be an active listener. Be an active listener. (laughs) Tell her, that sounds really tough, honey. Um, And you're planning to say all of those things, but it never comes out. Instead, you just fall asleep. She wakes you up suddenly. Did you hear one word I said? I'm trying to pour out my heart to you and you're snoring. And in that moment, you know, it's like a total fail, total fail. That's what happened with these disciples, total fail. Jesus is pouring out his heart and they leave him alone because they can't even engage in prayer with him. Jesus knew what he was about to suffer, but he also knew that he was going to do it alone and that was agonizing. I don't think the aloneness of his suffering, though, was the only source or even the main source of Jesus' agony. I think it was more connected with the fact that he was going to face the cross and all that it entailed. I mean, he's looking ahead and he knew that his death would carry with it the full horror of darkness and God-forsakenness. The full weight of the sins of all of the world for all time. Some of us know a little bit of what it feels like to be guilty. Like you did something shamefully wrong and it breaks your heart. You feel a heavy weight 
Now take all of that from all of the world for all of time and pour it on Jesus. I mean, that's what he knew he was headed towards. So in verse number 42, we shouldn't be surprised to discover this in his prayer. Look at verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. I want to explain that cup in just a second. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and he being in agony as he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. So what's happening here in this text? Well, the hour and power of darkness were closing in on Jesus and he knew he would be humiliated and he would be abused and he would suffer shame and pain on the cross. It says in Galatians 3.13, he would become a curse for us. He would take upon himself, this is Isaiah 53, 6, he would take upon himself the iniquities of us all. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he would become sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so Jesus is looking ahead to the pain and the death and the wrath and the judgment that he would bear and it's the cup. That's what he's talking about here. Would you remove this cup? Now this imagery of a cup, why does he pray? Would you remove the cup? It's imagery that comes from the Old Testament. In passages like Isaiah 51, 17 or Jeremiah 25, 15, they refer to the cup of wrath or the cup of staggering or the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. As though, it's this imagery, as though God's full wrath were contained in a cup. And then this cup is being poured out. And Jesus knows that the cup of God's wrath that should be poured out on humanity. The cup of God's wrath that justly should fall on people like us. Jesus knows the cup of that wrath is actually going to be poured out on him. Listen to Psalm 75, 7 and 8. Psalm 75, 7 and 8 says this. It is God who executes judgment. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The psalmist says the cup of God's wrath should be poured out on the wicked, all the way down to the bottom of the cup, the dregs. But here the picture is that God is going to take that cup that should be poured on us, pour it on Jesus, and he will swallow down the judgment we deserve. He gets what we deserve. He saw that coming, and that's the agony he's feeling as he prays. He would gulp down the dregs of God's wrath for all humanity for all time so that we wouldn't have to. That's what's right around the corner for Jesus. That's what's so agonizing in his heart as he prays. So you have the anguish of being alone. Remember, he's praying a stone's throw away and they're sleeping. 
but there's also the agony of unfathomable suffering that he was going to endure on the cross. So what does Jesus do when he's in agony? And I think this is a great question because you should ask yourself this question. What do you do when you're in agony? When the pressure's on, when pain runs deep, when you're, when you're greatly disappointed, when you're struggling with what you see in the future, okay, what do you do? What do you do when you're in agony? Here's what Jesus did. He prayed earnestly. I just think that's so instructive for us. Instead of Netflixing yourself earnestly, instead of drinking yourself earnestly, instead of recreational drugging yourself earnestly, instead of pursuing immorality earnestly, instead of sleeping earnestly, instead of retracting earnestly, maybe we should be praying earnestly. And that's what we find Jesus doing here. Verse 42, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's in fervent prayer. He's earnestly pursuing God. Sweat is dripping from him. And it seems like Luke is using a simile here. In other words, he, he employs the word like in verse number 44, like. He's sweating like, as it were, drops of blood. I mean, just profusely sweating. He's using an indirect comparison here. And so I think Jesus was sweating like blood, perhaps not actually blood. That's what it seems like the text is saying. But if you hold to the opinion that Luke is trying to be literal here, there is a medical phenomenon known as hematohydrosis. I had to break that down. Hematohydrosis. I don't know. Ask a doctor. They'll tell you in here. Basically, under great emotional stress, the capillaries associated with your sweat glands can produce a mixture of blood and sweat. You can read about it in the National Library of Medicine journal. Either way, here's the main plain point. Jesus is modeling prayer. He's not escaping the difficulty of his stress by going to bed like the disciples. I don't know if you, if you caught that. It says in verse number 45, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And you're almost like when you read that, what, sleeping for sorrow? Yeah, have you ever been so stressed or in such a burdened spot or, or so overwhelmed the only thing you do is escape by sleeping? I don't want to get up. I don't want to face those people. I don't want to go to work. I'm going to stay in bed. That's where these disciples were. They were sleeping for sorrow. They're escaping the difficulty and the stress by falling asleep. But Jesus wouldn't do that. Instead of withdrawing, he stayed in the battle and he fought on his knees. That's what you see in this text. Now, I've been an off and on runner for the past 12 to 15 years. And I think it's basically, I have this cycle figured out now. Air Force PT test happens in May. So I shave the beard. I'm a reservist. Shave the beard, put on the uniform, run my PT test. It happens in May. So I back up a number of months 
and I run during the spring to get ready for my, uh, for my PT test. So I've done these different half marathons, trail races, whatever, a bit of road running in the city, treadmills when the weather's not good. I don't mind treadmills. You know, some of you in this room, you hate treadmills. You know, you've told me, I hate treadmills. You don't see anything. That's what you say. You don't see anything. You don't go anywhere. You know, okay. If running is only about going somewhere, then treadmills are a waste of time. But what if there are other benefits? Now, the reason I'm talking about treadmills is because I want to talk to you about prayer. Some people view their prayer like a treadmill. They think it's a waste of time if you don't go somewhere. Like if it doesn't get you into a blessing, if it doesn't get you out of a crisis, then what's the point of prayer? But maybe there are other benefits we should consider. What if prayer is less about accessing a heavenly vending machine you know, where you get what you want at the end of the prayer? And what if it's more about conforming your will to God's will? In other words, embracing what he wants at the end of that prayer. My friends, prayer isn't just meant to take you somewhere. It's meant to train you in submission and endurance. Isn't that what we see with Jesus here? I mean, I think what we see taking place here in the garden is Jesus didn't get out of the cross, but he did submit to his Father's will. And sometimes that's what we need. Like, we're in a difficult spot. We're in a crisis point in our life. We don't have answers. Things are hard. Go to prayer. But go to prayer not just so that it gets fixed. Go to prayer so that you can submit to God's will. And that's what Jesus does here in this text. Now, I want to take one second here in, in Luke twenty-two, forty-four, because I realize this is a key text for one of the religions represented in our city, uh, where it says that Jesus sweat, as it were, like great drops of blood. And I think it's worth talking about for just a moment, because perhaps you came from an LDS background, or you have questions about that text, from their point of view. The Mormon religion has cited Luke twenty-two forty-four to make a point about atonement. So for instance, uh, one of the presidents, Ezra Taft Benson, said, it was in Gethsemane that Jesus took on himself the sins of the world. Or Joseph Fielding Smith said, it was in the garden of Gethsemane so the scriptures tell us that blood oozed from every pore of his body and in the extreme agony of his soul, he cried to his father, it was not the nails driven into his hands and feet. Now do not ask me how this was done because I do not know, nobody knows. All we know is that in some way he took upon himself the extreme penalty. He took upon him our transgressions and, made, and paid a price, a price of torment. In other words, both of these presidents are saying that atonement happened in the garden and not on the cross. They believe in an agonizing savior instead of a crucified savior who atoned for sin. So in other words, they're locating atonement in the garden when Jesus sweat, as it were, like great drops of blood. Now, I think that's an unfortunate and a mistaken understanding of this text. 
and an understanding of what was really required. So I want you to reason through this for a moment because perhaps you've been taught, unfortunately, the wrong thing about this text. Jesus had just told his disciples. I mean, remember, we're in the same chapter, Luke 22. Jesus had just told his disciples that it was going to be his broken body and shed blood that was going to pay for their iniquities. Do you remember? They're gathered around the Passover table earlier in this chapter. And he lifts up the bread. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he lifts up the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. So it wasn't going to be through sweating. It was going to be through dying. Because the Passover isn't about a lamb who sweats blood, but rather a lamb who is slaughtered. The lamb has to die. I mean, just think about Passover. They couldn't take a lamb, nick its, its bottom left foot, and, and then take a little, squeeze a little blood out, and then put it on the door. They couldn't do that. They had to kill the lamb. This is a consistent biblical theological point that goes all the way back to the law and stretches forward. In other words, when there was a sin offering, you killed the lamb. The lamb had to be killed. And it's only through the shedding of blood that there's remission of sins. And by shedding of blood, they mean the killing. Now, this stands to reason because here in the context of Luke 22, Jesus actually quotes from Isaiah 53. You see the quotation of Isaiah 53, 12 in Luke 22, 37. So here, right in the context, Jesus is talking about what's gonna go on and he cites Isaiah 53. And it talks about how he's going to be numbered with transgressors. Now, I want you to think about Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, these messianic prophecies 700 years before Jesus. This is what these chapters communicate. That he is going to be, quote, pierced for our transgressions. Quote, crushed for our iniquities. He would be like, quote, a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Quote, cut off from the land of the living. So he's not going to be living anymore. He's going to be cut off. He's going to be lifted up and marred beyond human semblance. These things are pointing to the cross, not the garden. That's what Jesus is referring to. The point here is that Jesus atoned for sin through his death, not his prayer. And we know that because Listen, you know this. This comes from the book of Romans, chapter six, verse 23. The wages of sin is what? Death. In other words, the penalty you deserve for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So if you are going to have a savior who's going to be a substitute, then he needs to, he needs to die in your place. And that's the point of the cross. He would be lifted up on a tree and cursed, as it says in Galatians. He would die in our place. His broken body and his shed blood on the cross would pay the debt that we owed. Let's see if we can wrap this, this opening scene up. The first Adam rebelled in the Garden of Eden 
and brought sin and death into the world. The last Adam, that's what Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. The last Adam submitted to the will of the Father in the garden, went to the cross, offered his life, and provided salvation for all who believe. Now, I can say that really quickly. It just kind of rolls off our tongue. But the actual events were filled with pain. Jesus' trail was marked by agony. Now, as this continues on, remember, we're, we're like walking with the disciples and Jesus is leading the way on this trail. And there are these markers. And the first marker is one of agony. But the next marker that we see on this trail is one of disloyalty. Jesus' path was marked by disloyalty, and that's what unfolds in these next number of verses. The story is about Jesus, and he finishes this agonizing prayer all alone in the garden, but then as the events unfold, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be abandoned, and he's going to be denied. That's what you see unfold in these next few verses. People all around him are disloyal to him. You can almost imagine, verse 46, Jesus just sadly shaking his head, a sigh of disappointment as he says, why are you sleeping? Rise, pray, so that you don't enter into temptation. In other words, Jesus knew that it wasn't just him who was gonna be squeezed in the pressure of these final moments, but actually his disciples were they were going to face some spiritual temptations as well. Why aren't you praying? And just as he says that, look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and a man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. So picture this mob. Verse number 52 says that they have clubs and swords. A mob with clubs and swords and torches at night. They're coming towards Jesus. You can hear like the clanking of the armored guards. You can hear the clamoring of the religious leaders talking from the back of the crowd. Who's leading the way? The satanically possessed disciple named Judas. Verse 47 says, he drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Someone wants to find a kiss as a contraction of the mouth due to the enlargement of the heart. Ooh, save that one for Valentine's Day. <laughs> but what we see here is that not every kiss is born out of a loving heart. This one was a sign of diabolical betrayal. Judas made a deal to hand Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. You can read about it in Matthew 26, 15. Now, we could just glaze over this, but I want you to think about the pain of disloyalty for a minute. I want you to feel the bitter sting of betrayal. I mean, has it ever happened in your life? Have you ever had someone close to you turn on you? Have you ever had a coworker who you trained throw you under the bus so that they could advance themselves? Have you ever had a spouse use your most vulnerable moment 
or their most intimate knowledge of you to hurt you? Have you ever had a business partner sell you out or a friend stab you in the back? If you knew some of that, then you've known some of what it feels like to be betrayed. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. And the disciples, as they see Judas coming, they see this mob, they start picking up what Judas is putting down. They say, wait a second, this doesn't look right. And so they say to the Lord in verse number 49, what do the other disciples say? They said, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Do you remember earlier in the chapter, they had scrounged up two swords? They're like, we found two, Lord. You know? <laughs> so you can almost imagine, here's this mob. They're coming in with clubs and spears and torches. Judas is leading the way. These other guys are like, wait, this doesn't look right. This doesn't, who's got the sword? Who's got the sword? And they're like looking around. And oh, I, I got one. And then, and then Peter grabs one, of course. Of course, Peter grabs one. And I think what's interesting here is like, we find that this guy named Malchus, he's the uh, servant of the, of the high priest, he gets his right ear cut off. And you have to pause for a second and think, how did that happen? How do you get the right ear? I mean, in one sense, it could be a swing like this. You know, like Ninja Warrior. I mean, maybe Peter's doing Ninja Warrior and he, sw he swings like this. I don't know, that seems a little weird. I think he's a fisherman and has no idea what he's doing with a sword. That's my opinion of Peter. And he's... And this guy's like ducks and there goes his ear. Like, I don't know. That, that's just how I'm picture, picturing it. The fisherman doesn't know how to use a sword. Malchus dodges and ducks, loses an ear. But pause in that moment for a second. Picture this bloody knob on the ground, this curly piece of cartilage in the dirt. Think about Peter. He's really proud of himself in that moment. <laughs> he drew the first blood. You know, he's like, there's more where that came from. You know, like, you, you just think about Peter in that moment. And then Jesus pipes up in verse 51. And what does Jesus say? He says, no more. No more of this. And what's fascinating next is he performs his last miracle before death. Have you ever thought about that? This little phrase right there, his last miracle before he goes to the cross and is crucified. Do you know what he does? He goes to his enemy who's gonna take him and imprison him and ultimately he's gonna be crucified. He goes to his enemy. Jesus reaches down in the dirt and picks up the ear and touches the side of Malchus's head and heals him. You know, when he says love your enemies, I think he knows what he's talking about. I mean, just, it's, just pause and think about mind-boggling what Jesus just did there. He heals this man's ear and says, this is your hour, verse 53, and the power of darkness. Jesus has felt the pain of betrayal. Judas sold him out. But in the next few moments of the story, we, we have to get this from Matthew 26 because Luke doesn't include it. But in the next few moments of the story, what happened is all the disciples scatter. So it's not just betrayal from Judas. What you're going to discover is Jesus is bearing the weight of disloyalty here. And it's the fact that he's abandoned even by the other 11. 
They, they, they all scatter. Matthew 26, 56 says this. The disciples left him and fled. They abandoned him in his greatest moment of need. This fulfills Zechariah 13, 17, which says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The disciples take off into the night, fleeing this way and that. And they abandon the Lord, trying to save themselves. Have you ever felt abandoned, deserted in a critical moment? You're at this project at work. It needs one last push and everyone bails and leaves you to work overtime by yourself. Or maybe your parents have aged, they need extra care, but none of your siblings will step up and lend a hand. Or maybe you were born into a difficult situation or your childhood was rocky and your parents gave you up to a family member, the state or an adoption agency. Maybe your spouse just walked out on you. Or maybe a family member or a close friend took their own life and they abandoned you. They left you alone. My friends, do you know the pain of disloyalty, the pain of abandonment? Jesus had been betrayed, he'd been abandoned. And then there's one last, I mean, just one last jab here, and it's Peter. It's the pain of his denial. Peter's kind of lurking in the background. They all scatter, but Peter's in the dark, kind of lurking in the background, watching from a safe distance. It says in verse 54, he's following at a distance. He watches where they take Jesus. He tries to get into the courtyard. He sits down. He's next to a fire, and you can almost imagine the light from the flickering flames lighting up his face. And the text says there's a servant girl who sees his face in the flickering firelight, and starts shouting, this man also was with him. This man also was with him. Can you imagine like being ratted out by the servant girl? And he's like, shh, be quiet. I don't even know him, he says in verse 57. A little later, someone else recognizes him. Verse 58, you are one of them. Peter says, man, I am not. An hour passes, another person insists that Peter is one of those following Jesus because they can tell from his accent. He's got this Galilean accent. But Peter said, verse 60, look at verse 60. Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And with that, Peter denies Jesus for the third time. I don't know what you think of Peter at this point. But sometimes when I read stories like this, I wonder what I would do in that circumstance. Like, what would you do? I don't know, you read church history, you have great aspirations that you'd be like one of those like strong, powerful martyrs that would hold on to the faith even at the stake. Or even if they fed you to the lions, I mean, you wouldn't deny Jesus. I mean, we, we love those stories in church history, don't we? This guy named Polycarp, he was actually discipled by the apostle John, served as the pastor of Smyrna until he was arrested called before a Roman proconsul, placed in chains in the center of a stadium, and ordered to deny Christ publicly or be executed. This is how Polycarp, in church history, this is how Polycarp responded. Eighty and six years I've served Jesus, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior now? The proconsul replies, if you don't denounce him, you'll be thrown to the beasts. The old man answers boldly, call them then. 
For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. That sets the Roman official off. He shouts back, then you will be burned at the stake. To which Polycarp says, you threaten me with a fire that burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished, but are ignorant of the fire of coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Bring forth what you will. And moments later, he's killed for his faith. And we read Polycarp's bold conviction. We're like, yes, amen. You know. But in the same breath, we have to pause and say, am I more like Peter than Polycarp? Some, somewhat embarrassing in our lives to discover that we find ourselves sometimes denying the faith instead of defending it. We close our mouth when we should open it. We shrink back instead of standing forward. We downplay our faith instead of magnifying it. We fold instead of standing with our Savior. And when that happens, I mean, have you felt that like I have? Do you have regrets for moments you didn't step forward or didn't open your mouth? And in those moments, our hearts are heavy. And I think that's how Peter feels. Verse number 60, look at verse 60, because this is a, a critical verse for Peter. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Do you know those eyes? Maybe it's your spouse, they just looked at you. Or maybe it was your parents, and they just looked at you. But it's, it's those eyes of just sadness and disappointment. Like, I, I can't believe you did that. Really? You, you did that? It's the, the, these eyes, it's like the Lord turns, looks at Peter. Jesus is being transported to another hearing. He's probably crossing an outer porch. He looks down, he meets Peter's eyes. Peter couldn't take it. Verse 62 says this. He went out and he wept bitterly. I mean, he just broke down. He'd been disloyal to his Lord. It's like, man, the last straw. I mean, the last straw that breaks the camel's back, you wonder if this was the last straw that broke Jesus' heart. He'd been betrayed by Jewish, Ju Judas, abandoned by the disciples, denied by Peter, and all of this disloyalty was mounting while he was making his way to the cross. To pay for the sins of the world, everyone was turning against him. His path was marked by agony, disloyalty, and as I close, I just want to suggest one more. His path was marked by reversal. Now, I want to explain this because it seems like a downward trajectory. But there's this little hint in our text that Jesus says, this is all going to get turned around. And so I want you to see that. Things are not going to be staying on this downward track. Yes, he'll be brought into custody. Yes, he'll be mocked and beaten. Yes, the guards are going to play games with him. We see it in verse 63. They're going to blindfold him, strike him. Oh, you're a prophet? Then tell us who just did this. And they hit him again. All of that's going to unfold, but there's this glimmer of hope in verse 69. It's in these three words, from now on. Okay, okay, you're going to have your fun. Okay, this is going to unfold, but he says, but from now on. And it's almost like there's a shift 
that takes place. Instead of getting rid of Jesus, these religious leaders are soon going to find out that his authority is established while theirs is destroyed. Make no mistake, Jesus is not merely a suffering servant who can be beaten and mocked. He's a sovereign king and he will reign and he will rule over all. That's what verse number 69 says. Look at this, verse 69. But from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I get this picture of Jesus. He's being yelled at by these chief priests. These scribes, he's being cross-examined like a prosecuting attorney that has a witness on the bench and they're just pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding against Jesus. If you are the Christ, then tell us, tell us, tell us. And I just imagine Jesus looking up and just staring at them for a moment. I mean, they're like rabid dogs, but he looks them in the face and he firmly says, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, when Jesus says that, they lose their minds. I mean, that's it. And for some of us, we don't quite get it because we don't pick up the allusions to the Old Testament that Jesus just made. He's actually grabbing some key Old Testament texts and he's putting it in there and claiming to be the very Son of God. Uh, we, we may not text it, but he's, or, or catch it, but he's saying, from now on, the son of man, that's a key phrase, shall be seated at the right hand, another key phrase, of the power of God. These are specific words about Jesus claiming to be the cloud rider of Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. Listen to what Daniel says. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. The son of man is going to get a kingdom. It's gonna be an everlasting kingdom with all power and all dominion. And Jesus says, from now on, you're gonna see the son of man, the cloud rider. That's me. And not only that, but you're gonna see that he's the messianic king prophesied in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verse one says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here are these religious hypocrites, these, these rulers of darkness, and Jesus is saying, I am the cloud rider and I am the king and I will sit in power. They scream back, are you the son of God then? And Jesus is like, well, you said it, not me. And with that, it ends. Now at this point, they're gonna take him away. I mean, next chapter, 23, come back next week, it's going to be the crucifixion. But I want you to realize when Jesus says from now on, and from, from now on, he's the cloud riding king. You need to have confidence that death can't hold him down. The kingdom will be established. His deity will be proven. His substitutionary death on the cross and his victorious resurrection will show who he really is. Death will be swallowed up in victory. The rulers and authorities will be put to open shame and the son of man will be seated at the right hand of God in power till all his enemies are made his footstool. That's the great reversal that he hints at here. So my friends, this path of Jesus, it's one marked by agony, disloyalty, but ultimately great reversal to the praise of his name. Let's pray together.
Father, we give you thanks that you sent your son. And along the path to the cross where he died for us, we're taught some very important lessons. Lessons about like agony and distress. Lord, I just wonder if there's someone here who's been struggling, maybe, maybe struggling through the pain of disloyalty. Thank you, Jesus, that you know that pain and you understand our sorrows. Thank you that we can run to you and find comfort in our time of need. I wonder if maybe even this morning, it's, it's not that people have been disloyal to us, but maybe we've been the ones who are disloyal. Maybe we've caused the agony. Perhaps we're the betrayer, the deceiver, the denier, the abandoner. Perhaps today there's some who need to repent and get things right. I just think about the forgiving look of Jesus. He'll go back to Peter and just minister deep forgiveness. And maybe some of us need that this morning. And so Lord, if that's the case, would you help us to run to you and find all that we need in you? We wanna close. We just wanna give thanks. We wanna give praise for the great reversal, the fact that Jesus suffered, but he didn't stay on the cross. He rose from the tomb so he could offer life and hope to all who believe. Lord, our eyes are on you. We pray in Jesus' name.